Hi, this is Dr. Michael Greenberg, on the road for Reach MDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. And today I'm in Philadelphia digesting a cheesesteak. I've stepped out of the 95 degree weather to visit the Muter Museum, which is part of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. And I'm speaking with our special guide, Anna Doty, its curator. Tell me first about the museum. How did it get its name and how did it end up here? Well, the Muter Museum is part of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. Now, the College of Physicians of Philadelphia is the oldest professional society in continuous operation in the United States. It is not a college in the sense of a degree-granting institution, but it's rather a professional society for colleagues in the medical profession. It was established in 1787. We had people such as Benjamin Rush, John Morgan, some very, very famous early physicians in Philadelphia came together and established this society. Now, the Muter Museum came about a couple of years later. In 1858, Thomas Dent Muter, who was also a fellow of the College of Physicians, decided to bequeath the college his entire teaching collection as well as an endowment, and that's why we call it the Muter Museum. We started with about 2,000 objects. The museum opened in 1863, and now we have well over 25,000 objects. Is Dr. Rush still around? We actually have Dr. Rush's medicine chest, but it's actually on tour right now. It's on a traveling exhibit that started at the National Constitution Center. All right, well, thank you. Let's start to go around the museum and and look at some things, and we can talk more about it. From her office, Anna led me through a dank basement, which looked every bit its hundred years, up an ancient staircase, and through a heavy oak door into the museum proper. We've just come into this astonishing two-level gallery that looks very much like Guy's Hospital in London, or the old hospitals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what do we have in this room? Well, we have actually, our exhibits at the moment are divided into kind of body systems. Right behind you, we have the neurology section. And you'll see we've got lots of brains, brain slices. We also have what we refer to as the eye wall of shame. Those are wax models of pretty much anything that can go wrong with your eye, we show it. From cancer to a stick. It's all fun and games, right? Till somebody loses an eye. It's all fun and games until lose, exactly. And then it's an exhibit. Now, this is, of course, our skeletal pathology section, and being a forensic anthropologist, this is my favorite. I know I'm not supposed to play favorites, but we've got some well, really tell, interesting tell, stuff. I see things in the room that are on your website. Tell us what's mm-hmm. really cool in this room. One of the main things that people come to see is right here. All right, let's walk over here. Right. And I'm looking at like the hugest human skeleton I've ever seen in my life. It's, he's about 85 feet tall. Tell us about this. <laughs> well, I have to, of course, put in a disclaimer that he is the second tallest skeleton on display. He is the tallest skeleton on display in North America. The Hunterian Museum in London does have us beat by one inch. However, I argue with the spinal curvature right here, he'd probably be over seven feet seven. We could straighten him out. Tell tell us (laughs) his story. Well, we don't really actually know a terribly lot about him because he was purchased for $50 by Dr. Joseph Lighty. We did used to purchase our objects. We don't anymore. Uh, We're purely a donation base. But he is, like I said, 7 feet 6 inches tall. I should mention that he does have the tallest femora on display in the world. You can see that he's not entirely proportionate. He is not supposed to be this tall. He has pituitary gigantism. And I believe early onset acromegaly, uh, you'll be able to see that in the face. He's got a very pronounced jaw, very robust face. And his limbs are disproportionately long. His spine's curved. He has pigeon breast, all of that. 
Well, what we're getting to here, I guess the theme is that, like, this is not just a freak show. This is actually something that could be studied. I mean, we hear acromegaly, you may never see anybody with it. Mm-hmm. And now you can actually see what it does to the human form. Absolutely, absolutely. I personally do not like to use the term freak. I like to think of it as we're kind of witness to the extremes of the bell curve of humanity. I like that. Yeah. And this is a normal? Human? Yes, exactly. So what we have here right in the middle is we ha- he's referred to as the muter American giant. Now, to his right, we have Mary Ashbury. Now, she is a dwarf. She has a chondroplasia. What a lot of people don't know is there's actually about or over 200 types of dwarfism. By and large, the most common you'll see is a chondroplasia. And then, of course, uh, on the other side, we have a quote-unquote normal adult male skeleton for a frame of reference. He unfortunately does not get much face time. He's just kind of there as a thing, but I, you know, we have to give him his due. No one comes in and asks for Mo Curly and Larry here, do they? No, actually, it's a, <laughs> that's a good one. No, I haven't, I haven't had that well, one. Well, this is a fascinating start into this museum because, as I see, it's very important to say this is a repository of learning. It's not. Yes. It's not a show. No, it is not. Well, we like to call it disturbingly informative. Whatever it is that your intent is when coming here, you might come here to be grossed out or freaked out, but you're going to leave informed, whether you like it or not. You're going to learn something about the human body and probably about yourself. And back here is one of your stars. Back here, one of my favorites. I love it. Notice I say this about a lot of things, one of my favorites. I understand. Now, this is real. This This is is absolutely real. This is what we have to tell people is that the colon on the top shelf is real. The colon on the bottom is a wax model depicting a normal intestinal tract. Now, for our listeners, I have to say I'm looking at the hugest toxic megacolon it's stuffed with straw, though, isn't it? No. It's stuffed with straw and uh, maybe some horse hair. Yeah. It it's looks dry. like something out of a science fiction movie. It's huge. Now, the interesting thing is this is the result of a condition that is still present to this day. It's called Hirschsprung's disease, and it results in this megacolon if left untreated. This individual was born with this condition. He began manifesting symptoms at around 18 months, and he only lived to be about... 29 years of age. Towards the end of his life, they were recording something along the lines of one bowel movement a month. At the time of death, the colon actually measures about 8 feet 4 inches in length, about a foot and a half in diameter, and had 40 pounds of fecal material in it at the time of death. And you have a picture of him down here. Whenever we possibly can, we like to have records, we like to have anti-mortem photographs. That really enhances the people's understanding of this. How old is this? This is from the 1800s. I won't say the predominant amount, but most of the items we have here are in excess of 100 years old, the specimens themselves. Now, like I said, he died at the age of 29. If you've just tuned in, you're on the road with me, your host, Dr. Michael Greenberg, on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. And we're on tour in Philadelphia with Anna Doty, the curator of the disturbingly informative Muter Museum. What else do we have in this room or along the walls and the cabinets here? Well, I want to introduce you to Harry Eastlack. Okay. He is the only skeleton on display in the world with fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva, or FOP for short. This is a congenital disorder whereby you have extra bone growing where it's not supposed to grow. You also have all the joints fusing together. As of now, we estimate about 400 diagnosed cases in the world, maybe about 1,200 cases worldwide. Extremely rare, no cure, no real effective treatment. Harry himself is a wonderful just example. He is completely skeletalized, of course. He's prepared. And one thing to notice about Harry when you come and see him is look how much metal is used to articulate him. Hardly any. 
He's self-articulated. He is completely fused. Now, did Harry donate his skeleton? Yes. Harry actively wanted to have his body donated to science, donated to have doctors and everybody take a look at him and hopefully be used to further the study of FOP. And as a matter of fact, one of the foremost FOP researchers in the world, his name is Dr. Frederick Kaplan, he's at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. And not this past April, but the April before, he actually isolated and discovered the one gene in our six billion plus that causes FOP. Now that's the main beginning to help. From working with us? He comes to visit Harry all the time. He brings his students. I open up the case. I don't let anybody touch him, but they can get a little bit closer, really kind of get in there and see things. Because you'll see he has this heterotopic bone plate formation. That's this extra bone plate formation that's kind of in response to perhaps a trauma or a flare-up where his body will replace connective tissue with bone. He also has these extra bone outcroppings, these, I think they're called osteochondromas. They're non-cancerous, but they're bone formation spurs that look a little bit different. Right there you have one on his left femur. If you take a look at his femora, I bet you can guess which one they operated on. Now, unfortunately with FOP, because it is so rare, it is extraordinarily misdiagnosed. Oftentimes it's a type of juvenile cancer, and as a result, the treatments often make the FOP worse. Now, in Harry's case, they perform surgery on his femur to try and help him, and of course, with disastrous results. Now, Harry actually lived to be a couple days shy of his 40th birthday, and he died in the 1970s. To this day, the average life expectancy of an individual with FOP is only 45. Who come to this museum more? Do you get groups of doctors and medical students coming, or more tourists? Well, that's a great question. About 30 years ago, it was almost entirely people with some sort of medical degree. Now, over 85% of our visitors have no medical background whatsoever. And our main demographic is kind of 18 to 35, which is a very young, very hip demographic. We seem to attract that. We do get a lot of school groups, too. We have no age restriction. You can come to the museum. We like to think that parents know their children better than we do. We encourage you to go to our website, take a look, see if it's appropriate for your children. Some seven-year-old might have a, just a wonderful time where a 17-year-old might get freaked out. It's, it's all very personal. Do the people who come to tour who aren't medical people leave with a sense of reverence, or do you think that they've just seen a museum? Do they leave comments? Oh, absolutely. We have a comment book. We can go up and take a look at it. Like I said, whatever the reason for coming here is, I definitely think they leave informed. And I think they do leave with a couple of main things. They leave with an appreciation of the modern medical system. Because you'll see here infections, pre-penicillin, pre-antiseptic, any of those things. That you'll see horrible infections. You'll see horrible bone breaks. We have tertiary syphilis. You get a very strong reaction maybe when you're looking at this and you leave with the impression of, gosh, I'm glad I'm born in the era of penicillin or I'm glad I and born, you know, when there's chemotherapy or when there's these modern medical advances. So I think that that is definitely something people leave with an impression of knowing that. I think they also leave informed about current situations, the fact that they might not have to worry about getting rickets or scurvy or yellow fever even, whereas so many of our specimens here did have to worry about that. See, as a physician, my response is that I get to see things that I would never get to see otherwise. I mean, I really don't see tertiary syphilis these days. Exactly. And so exactly. a museum like this offers me that kind of sacred space mm -hmm. to learn. Yes, we actually do have physicians coming here to, like I said, Dr. Kaplan and his crew come to see Harry and to look at the only fully articulated skeleton with FOP. We also have a lot of things that you might not think are applicable to modern medicine, but really are. We have 
very accurate wax model showing all the various stages of smallpox. Now, unfortunately, after 9-11 and when bioterrorism became an issue, those are perhaps things that doctors might have to know about. And um, whose models are they? The these are our models. Um, they're wax models that were made primarily from two main sources, Tremonde in Paris and Town of London. Right. These, of course, were made for teaching specimens for doctors pre-photographs. Right. I've seen Towns models at Guy's Hospital in London. They're yes. fabulous. And as a dermatologist, I was astonished that I could see things that I would never see anywhere else. Thanks for joining us today at the Muter Museum with our guest Anna Doty, its curator, who has shown us not simply an interesting museum of the dead, but a living institution of medical education. ReachMDXM157 is here for you, the health professionals who care for your patients. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, where our newly redecorated website with its on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Register on the website and enter promo code RADIO for six months of free podcasts. And we truly thank you for listening.